0: This morning uh, brings us face-to-face, I mentioned this last week, face-to-face with the all-grown-up John the Baptist preparing the way for the all-grown-up Jesus Christ. Luke having spent the, the better part of two full chapters unpacking the birth stories of Jesus and John along with the sprinkling in of a story going back to last week having taken place in Jesus's boyhood years. Chapter three now, as we dive in here, begins with a, a similar address to that which we saw in chapter one. It's almost as if Luke's gospel account is starting all over again as he purposefully frames the adult lives and ministries of Jesus and John in a historical context so that uh, Luke tells us, chapter three, verse one, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iduraiah, and Troconetus and Lucinius, tetrarch of Abilene during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. All right, why give us all those names that are really hard to pronounce and make Jobs like mine, all the more difficult. What is, what is Luke doing? Well, well, we know going back to the beginning of this sermon series that his aim is to compile an orderly, reliable account, and that includes establishing something of a historical backdrop, right? Going back to the, the first couple chapters of this incredible book of the Bible, chapter one, verse five, Luke says, in the days of Herod, king of Judea. Chapter two, verse one, in those days, the decree went out from Caesar Augustus Here in chapter three, Luke continues to to make clear that this is is not some fable, but rather a true story rooted in human history with real names and real places. It's the heralding of the historic, something that's truly happened outside of us to bring about our rescue from sin and death. Yes, Luke's gospel account has all of the classic ingredients of a compelling fairy tale, right? A king and a kingdom, a lurking dragon, a damsel in distress, a dragon-slaying knight in shining armor. We'll see him come in full force next week and onward marching throughout the rest of this gospel account. And yet, Luke wants to make crystal clear to us that, that this is the truest of fairy tales. As he goes to great lengths to continue to make plain to us by declaring the names like Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, Herod Antipas, Philip the Tetrarch, Caiaphas the high priest, some of these very men would go on to play a significant role in the trial and execution of Jesus so that Luke gives us something of the the darkened political and religious backdrop in setting the stage for this coming Messiah. In those days, Luke tells us that the word of God came to the son of Zechariah in the wilderness, John the Baptist, not described here for his unique fashion sense or dietary choices, which he's very famous for in other parts of the the Bible. No, Luke simply focuses on the message of John, the first true prophet following, following 400 years of prophetic darkness. The continuation, if you remember, going back uh, several weeks ago of a ministry that began in the womb of Elizabeth, his mother, where the unborn John leaped for joy at the arrival of the unborn Jesus inhabiting the womb of Mary. His first prophetic act, as the forerunner called to herald the coming Messiah, preparing the way of the Lord before he was even able to speak, announcing Jesus's presence As I mentioned back then in the words of one commentator, John the Baptist was the only child ever to use a womb for a pulpit. And here he continues that very pulpit ministry several decades later in preparing the way for the the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Luke tells us in verse three, and he went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The, The baptism of John, it was something different from the ceremonial washings that took place in temple worship. It wasn't something ongoing. Rather, it was a one-time experience symbolizing a change in a person's relationship with the living God. And in that sense, John's baptism of repentance prepared the way for the sacrament of Christian baptism as we know it today, an outward symbol of an inward reality, an inward change. In the words of one commentator, baptism was a sign of the spirit-given grace of repentance. As Luke goes on to say, verse four, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight, Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Right here, Luke references a portion of uh, Isaiah chapter 40, an Old Testament prophecy that finds its fulfillment right here in Luke's gospel account in the ministry of John the Baptist. As John calls the people of his own generation to repent, preparing the way of the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ, that it's really interesting imagery because in the ancient world, it was customary uh, for people to construct smooth level entry roads into their city in preparation for the visitation of royalty, a king or a queen, so that that king or queen might receive a, a proper welcome, not rolling into town on rough, bumpy roads, so to speak, but rather smooth roads in the fullness of their splendor and their majesty. The king or queen would would then send a a messenger ahead of the caravan to announce their arrival to that city so that the inhabitants of the city might be prepared to receive them. That's the imagery we're we're meant to get in our minds as we think about Jesus entering into Luke's gospel account in full force. In this case, John offers the imagery of a, a highway in the desert, a highway for the Lord as he comes to to redeem his people, having stepped into the slums of human history. One who would level the mountains of religious pride on the one hand, and who would lift up the valleys of the poor in spirit on the other hand. One in whom all flesh, all kinds of people would see God's salvation as Simeon had, looking into the eyes of the newborn Jesus. Paul tells us elsewhere, Second Corinthians four, you may remember this from our series walking through that book of the Bible, Paul declares that the glory of God is made visible in the face of Jesus Christ. The author of Hebrews declares Jesus to be the radiance of the glory of God. He's the glory of God revealed, the, the visible revelation of God's splendor, God's majesty that I've said this before, similar to how uh, we know the sun by virtue of its light and heat, we know the glory of God by virtue of Jesus's embodiment and radiance of that very glory. In the words of one commentator, just as the radiance of the sun reaches this earth, so in Christ, the glorious light of God shines into the hearts of men and women. Going back to the first couple chapters of, of Luke's gospel account, the entrance of Jesus into the world is about the glory of God revealed from the cradle to the the cross to the crown. If Luke had continued with his reference of Isaiah 40 and gone on declaring that Old Testament prophecy to us in his gospel account, the very next words that he would have put to paper, you can go read this in Isaiah chapter 40, would have been, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Meaning that, Jesus' entrance into the world, it's not not based on the faithfulness of man, but on the promises of God. It's amazing to to think of the handful of, of Old Testament prophecies and promises that have already come true in Luke's gospel account, and we're barely into chapter three. The mouth of the Lord spoke in Isaiah 7, 14, saying that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. We've seen it in Luke's gospel account. The mouth of the Lord spoke in Micah chapter five, verse two, declaring that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. We've seen it in Luke's gospel account. The mouth of the Lord spoke in Malachi chapter three, verse one, declaring that the Messiah would have his way prepared by a forerunner. And we see it right now in Luke's gospel account with the ministry of John out in the wilderness. That God's promises really do come true. Luke goes on to tell us in verse seven. He says, he said, therefore, to the crowds, John did, that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. This is where the the four gospel accounts, when you piece them together, can be helpful because Matthew offers us a little more clarity on who John's referring to with his brood of vipers language, namely the Pharisees and the Sadducees, those who were deeply religious but profoundly mistaken. Those who saw it sufficient to, to have simply been born of Jewish descent. as Jesus would go on to say in John chapter three, "No, we must be born again." He would declare that to Nicodemus. Or as Paul says in Galatians 3:29, if you, "If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. That that there were Jews in the crowd who expected those of Gentile descent to receive John's baptism for sure as a means of ritual cleansing and being brought into the covenant family, the covenant community. But it was an act of cleansing from which they themselves thought they were exempt, believing they were already clean because they belonged to God's people. But as we know and as we've talked about so many times I've lost count, Salvation is not on the basis of religious pedigree. It's Not about checking all of the, the religious ritualistic boxes, so to speak. That John boldly declares that there are none who are exempt from their need for the cleansing work of the Lord in their lives. Setting the stage, John is, for the cleansing work of Jesus Christ. We just sang about that calling all within earshot John does to bear fruit in keeping with repentance, the, the outworking of a transformed life in light of an encounter with the true living God, which is key to Luke's gospel account as, as we'll see over and over again throughout this series. Surely surely something of a shock to the system in rattling the, the messianic expectations of many in the crowd that day, which leads many of them Luke goes on to tell us to press John on this matter of repentance, particularly as John speaks of the dangers of hell. Luke goes on to say, and the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. And tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. And soldiers also asked him, and, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. Like, this, is, this is something of, of like a, a, a movie trailer for Jesus' Sermon on the Mount to come, or as Luke, uh, it's referenced in Luke's gospel account, the Sermon on the Plain. Because what John's doing here, he's setting the stage for the the kingdom ethic that Jesus has come to inaugurate. The king having come to rescue a people for himself that will live under the banner of his rule and reign. Declaring that the ethic of the kingdom is not one of greed, but one of sacrificial generosity. That the ethic of the kingdom, John declares, is not one of exploitation, but one of justice and, and equity the ethic of the kingdom is not one of threats and extortion, but one of contentment. Right here, John offers everyday examples of what it means to live in accordance with the kingdom of God as true citizens of heaven's king. He could have gone on with a thousand different outworkings of a kingdom ethic. He gives us just a few. In this case, the way we approach money and possessions, which is something of a theme in Luke's gospel account. Again, we'll, we'll see that over and over again as well. Luke goes on to say in in verse 15, as the people were in expectation and, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I, he's coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. But in in light of John's preaching and teaching, you can see how people might come to this conclusion. There was question as to whether John himself might be the Messiah. And, And John quickly pushes back on that thinking on two different levels. For one, he declares himself completely inferior to Jesus not worthy to untie Jesus's sandals. In John's day, interestingly, uh, students did not typically pay tuition, but instead they would, they would do menial tasks of service for their teachers. But, but there was one thing that, that no one was expected to do, and that was to, to untie a teacher's sandals. That untying a person's sandals was the job of a slave in John's day reserved for the, the lowest of, low, of the low in society, which shows us something of the humility of, of Jesus, does it not, in the washing of his disciples' feet as we'll see later on in, in this great story. And yet John says, I'm not worthy to do that for Jesus. I don't deserve to even be so much as a slave of Christ. He understood that, that the truly God-glorifying life is the one that makes much of Jesus and less of oneself. John 3.30, he must increase and I have to decrease. I gotta get out of the way so people can see him. It's not about me, it's about him. That in John the Baptist, we come face to face with a prophetic messenger, the forerunner, called to, to herald the coming Messiah, to call Israel to repentance in preparation to meet her God in the coming of of his kingdom. In Jesus, we come face to face with the king himself, the promised Messiah, not only greater than John in his personhood and being, but greater than John in the baptism that he would go on to bring. That John's baptism was outward. It was symbolic. It was a sign of inward cleansing and forgiveness. Jesus's baptism is inward and transformative. The refining fire of God's spirit progressively melting away over the course of time, the impurities in us that we might shine radiantly more and more for his glory. A righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, a kingdom righteousness that works from the inside out, going back to that Sermon on the Mount language. Evidence, John says, verse 17, as to whether we are among the wheat to be gathered into the barn of God's eternal storehouse or whether we are among the chaff, to be cast into the unquenchable fire. Save some of this doctrine of hell for another day because Jesus talks about it a lot. There are plenty of opportunities to get into much of that. But but let me go on for a moment. I'll touch on that in just a second. But let me go on to verse 18 because I I wanna unpack a couple of things that I think are really sweet in this passage that are birthed out of these last few verses. Verse 18, Luke says, so with many other exhortations, John preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Couple things to, to mention in closing out this morning's Passage one having to do with John's message, the other having to do with John's hearers, and that includes you and me. As it pertains to the message, John's open air sermon includes the language of eternal judgment, right? Verse nine, the ax laid to the root of the trees. Verse 17, the chaff that will burn with unquenchable fire, which might lead some to wonder how Luke could possibly refer to John's preaching as good news, verse 18 to which I would offer two things one future and one present in terms of the future and I've said this before no one wants to live in a narnia eternally inhabited by the white witch and her band of followers that is no heaven at all that without the destruction of the enemies of god there is no everlasting peace for the people of god that's the future reason the future tense reason that john can, can declare, or that Luke can declare John's message to be good news, including its language of eternal judgment. But there's a second thing, and it has to do with the present tense. Namely this, that, that John's message leads sinners like you and me to turn to Jesus for mercy, knowing that we could never possibly make ourselves clean in the eyes of a holy God. Like the leper who came to Jesus in the wake of his sermon on the mount, The outcast of society, forced to to shout out in public settings, unclean, unclean, so as to to warn others of the danger of his close proximity, creating disruption as as the crowds of people came down that, that mountain, parting like the Red Sea so as not to come within arm's length of the man. The scribes and Pharisees, in that case, looking upon the man with disdain, just like the Pharisees and Sadducees who sat under John's preaching in the wilderness. In what kind of state did the leper find himself as Jesus descended that mountain? Well, the answer is the perfect state to receive mercy and grace. That the kingdom of heaven, it's not for the self-sufficient. It's not for the self-righteous. The kingdom of heaven is for the self-abandoning. Those who see their desperate need for a hope, not within themselves, but outside of themselves. That that we're all meant to to see something of our poverty of spirit when we gaze on the hopeless condition of the leper. And in the same way, we're we're all meant to see something of our poverty of spirit when we sit under the preaching of John. And ultimately, in the one that he was preparing the way for, Jesus Christ, as we continue through this great book of the Bible, that John forces us to abandon ourselves, to demonstrate faith and crying out, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean that that's the appropriate response to the message of John. His preaching, directing our gaze to the hope of Jesus Christ, that empty-pocketed sinners like you and me might declare, Jesus, I cannot make myself clean. My only hope is for you to make me clean. And if that's your cry, Jesus says, just like he says to the leper in the wake of his great sermon on the mount, I will be clean that he's the one who touches the untouchable by his grace, making us citizens of his eternally happy kingdom, a kingdom, as John teaches us, of generosity, a kingdom of equity, a kingdom of contentment, and so much more, which he fans into flame in our hearts by his spirit. Which leaves us with with one final question, one that I think Luke intends for us to wrestle with by his inclusion of Herod in the story. If you you read in other parts of scripture, you you find that King Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great, didn't heed John's words. He married the ex-wife of his half-brother Philip and ultimately had John the Baptist imprisoned and beheaded because John rebuked him. This is the, the same Herod who would go on to put his purple robe on Jesus and mock him along with his soldiers. So that by including these verses, Luke leaves us with a question. It's very similar to uh, Jesus' uh, parable of the prodigal son. You may remember, we've talked about this a few times along the way, that that, that parable ends open-ended. There is no conclusion to it all. You're, you're left with a, a wayward son having come home and a religious older brother out in the cold, and the question is, how will the older brother respond? Will he step in, into that house and celebrate the return of, of his younger brother with, with his father, with the family, or will he remain out in the distant cold? It's the same thing Luke's doing here. By including these verses, he's presenting us with the question, will, how will we respond? Will we respond like Herod on the side of the white witch Or will we respond like the many sinners and tax collectors to follow in Luke's gospel account, crying out like the leper, I'm desperate for you, Jesus. And here's the beauty of Luke's gospel account. We get to see him and stare into his eyes for for the remainder of this great book of the Bible. Jesus is about to step onto the scene and, and we're gonna get to see his person, his ministry, his miracles, his heartbeat for lost humanity. We get to see all of that, and we get to cry out over and over and over and over again, the sermon application every week to come, I'm desperate for you, Jesus. And so I invite you to cry that out this morning in these moments to come. As we sing through the collective song of the church, it'll be an opportunity to express that desperation for Jesus, for his mercy, for his grace, for the empowering work of his cleansing spirit. We're also gonna worship through the receiving of the Lord's Supper. If you're a Christian, that meal is for you. Uh, There are communion cups on the back table if you missed it on your way in. Uh, You're welcome to go grab one of those. Uh, And over the course of these last couple of songs, whenever you're ready to do so, uh, you're welcome to take the bread representing the broken body of Jesus and to dip it in the cup representing his shed blood. As we know, as we've already sung this morning, it's Jesus Christ in whom true cleansing comes. It's in Jesus that we can be declared, pronounced clean, and it's in Jesus that we functionally, throughout the course of our lives, can experience his transformative work and be truly made what we've already been declared to be in him.